Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John O'Leary is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I am so thrilled to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. And you ready for this? On the very first episode of my Live Inspired podcast, give yourselves a huge hand for being one of the first to join the movement. In every episode, I will have amazing guests joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life you will absolutely hear some profound and unforgettably inspiring stories. But more than that, and more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, my goal here is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose, and it is a choice, to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, be, achieve, and impact even more through your life. Or, maybe more simply said, so that you can live inspired. I shared a stage with my guest today years back at his event called the Success Tour. There were thousands of real estate agents in the room. Thousands. Little did I know that fateful day that I was meeting my mentor, my soon-to-be friend, a guy that I highly look up to. His direction has helped me improve my speaking, improve my business, improve my family, grow in my faith and even led directly, directly to me writing and then releasing my best-selling book, On Fire. Today's guest, Brian Buffini, is an author, a speaker, a trainer in the real estate industry. What makes Brian so successful, though, is that his philosophies go beyond the day-to-day principles of real estate or business or however they want to apply it, and actually teaches his friends, his followers, his community, to lead well-rounded, inspired lives way beyond business. So my grandfather, once you graduated his training, you went on to the job site and you were kind of his project, the apprentice, if you will. And he would walk through the job site and meet the lads and whatever else that were working. And then at the end of the day, he'd say, well, now, Brian, show me what you did. You'd show him your work. And then he'd ask you the question, can you put your name to that? Mm -hmm. Can you put your name to that? And it's a brilliant question because it's one of standards and there's times when you know once you learn the routine because if you said well no I could have done it a bit better you knew you were doing it over and it didn't matter that the client hadn't asked for it it wasn't about let's get the basic things that someone can sign off on there was a standard that was set and the reason the business had been around for over a hundred years is because we exceeded people's expectation you may have noticed a bit of an accent there I know I did Brian happens to be my Irish brother from another mother. He is an immigrant from Dublin, Ireland. Today, Brian, though, is better known as the president and founder of America's largest and I think most successful real estate training and coaching company, Buffini & Company. Brian will share how, with a strong foundation from his Irish forefathers, he came to America absolutely broke grew a full, inspired life, married, became a father, grew in his health, his faith, his business, 
My friends, to set a little bit of context, many of the episodes, many of the podcasts we do are recorded in studio. But this one with Brian was recorded on the road. It was recorded outside of his house on a patio overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It was an absolute dream to be there. But more than the view was the guy I got to sit across from. When we pulled up in front of his house, Brian was already outside waiting for me. This is a busy guy who's got a million things going on. He's already outside. He comes over, gives me a big hug. Then he walks over to the taxi cab driver. Okay, This is a guy I barely know. This is a guy Brian does not know. Asks the guy to roll down his window. The guy does. Brian extends his hand, introduces himself. The guy shakes his back, and Brian says, hey, we're about to record a podcast. Why don't you come join us? This is Brian's home. His kids are there. His wife's inside. Business is going on. Life is crazy. And Brian is the kind of man who reaches out, in some regards, to the least among us, to bring him in, to make him feel like he belongs, to touch another life. It's how he's reached out to me. You're going to feel that love in this podcast. You're going to feel it in this show. You're going to feel it in every word that Brian speaks. I know you're going to love this one, my friend. So welcome to our first episode and my first guest, Brian Buffini. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired on the Road with John O'Leary. Oh, today, my friends, you are in for a real treat. Brian Buffini, one of the greatest speakers, best coaches, strongest business minds, biggest hearts, committed family man, funniest storytellers, a personal mentor, and a friend joins us. Brian Buffini, welcome to Live Inspired on the Road with John O'Leary. Thanks, John. Great to be on with you and the top of the morning to you. Top of the morning and the rest of the day to you, my friend. Uh, I'm sure the listeners right now at home are hearing a little bit of a creak in the background. There's some water going on. Uh We're not in the studio. We are on the road. I'm in San Diego with you at your home. Just paint the picture of where we're sitting right now. We're in uh, Southern California in the backyard here uh, overlooking the ocean. And life is good, you know. We've come a long way from being an immigrant with 92 bucks in my wallet. So God is good, very thankful, and very thankful for you and all you do. Brian, you know, I'm convinced at this point in my journey that everybody has a story, mm-hmm. and it's frequently not the story we're telling the world. Mm-hmm. I have a sense through your accents and by knowing your experiences that your journey did not begin in sunny Southern California with the ocean in the background. It began no. somewhere very different. Yep with very different means. So take us back to your childhood, where you grew up and what experiences were like back then. Well, uh, there's a famous Irish poet named Patrick Kavanagh and he said, Dublin made me in no little town with the country closing in on its streets. So I grew up in Dublin. I was a city boy, five boys and one girl, mom and dad, about 710 square foot terraced home that they still live in today. I was just there last month. My little Irish 86 year old mother had her knee replaced. And she says, it's going to put 10 yards on her drive. <laughs> so came to America on a holiday at uh, 19. You know, had the proverbial 92 bucks in my wallet, which wasn't proverbial, it was actual. Actually, I had 100. The story's 92, but I had 100. My Uncle Jimmy, who sponsored me to get my green card, my dad's brother, he met me at uh, JFK and him and my cousin Polly. And we had a couple of beers. And they let me buy the beers, which was uh, interesting. Generous. Later on... Uh, what Polly said, if I'd have known you'd been this successful, I'd have bought the beer. <laughs> so, so I came to America, 92 bucks, was selling t-shirts at the beach, had a goal to get a suntan and meet suntan girls. That was it. And I'm still kind of pale, and I ended up marrying an African-American <laughs> gal. So life didn't turn out the way I intended. 
So I'm, I'm going to back you up just a little bit because I think frequently when people bump into in life someone who has become extremely successful in all the right measurements of that word, they assume that it was a normal journey and that they kind of began there. We're hearing you started in Ireland, Dublin, $92, bought a couple beers, all that. What was a normal day like for a kid? I mean, did you have jobs growing up? Did you have money growing up? No, you had no money. I mean, nobody had money in Ireland uh, that I knew. I'm sure there were people who had money, but they weren't in the circles I was running or in the neighborhood I was running. You know, we were a family painting and decorating business for over 100 years. And so when you were eight years of age in my family, you went to work on your weekends off and on your summer vacations inside the family business. You started out with my grandfather, Harry, who's the the Mr. Miyagi of the Buffini family. And he showed you how to hold a brush properly. He showed you how to prepare and sand and fill and paste and you learned your trade with him mm. and then he'd send you on to the job site and so at a very young age i never forget it one of the best days and worst days of my life was um in the fourth grade as you would say here i'm in mrs kelly's class and she's asking each kid what their dad does mm-hmm. so she says brian what does your father do and i said my dad's a professional painter and she goes what does that mean like, oh, he's a professional painter. I mean, there's a lot of people who right. have trucks and station wagons, but we have a whole principle and a way in which we do work, and it's built on this principle, can you, can you put your name to it? And as a, as a fourth grader, I was able to explain how my father did his work and how it was different than the average painter and why it was better. And lo and behold, that night, we had the only phone on our street. We were 48 homes on our street growing up. We had the only phone in the neighborhood because my dad had a business. And Mrs. Kelly calls, and she asks my dad for an estimate. My dad goes over, and they went and painted her house, and they did a fantastic job, which is what we did for everybody. And then she refers him to the principal of the school. So from the fifth grade until I graduated high school, I spent every day. We had four months off for summer. I spent every day at school painting the bleeding school because I landed the <laughs> referral. But what it taught me is I, at an early age, I could, I could articulate. Yeah. I could sell. I could promote. And I was a worker, although I, I did imprison myself in Outlands High School for the next uh, seven years. Your grandfather's question, I understand he used to come up onto your job <clears throat> sites, uh, yeah. kind of put his arm around you, right. check in to see how the day went, and then he would ask you a question. Right. What, what's the question and what does it mean to you back well, then and what does it yeah, mean to Yeah, the question from? is a defining principle. You know, it's funny, everybody's running around, what's my purpose, and reading the books and doing the tapes and listening to podcasts, and I get it, and that's my clientele too. But in days gone by, people weren't asking those questions, but they were often given the answers because people were passing on principles from family member to family member. We've lost a bit of that. Hmm. So my grandfather, once you graduated his training, you went on to the job site and you were kind of his project, the apprentice, if you will. And he would walk through the job site and meet the lads and whatever else that were working. And then at the end of the day, he'd say, well, now, Brian, show me what you did. You'd show him your work, and then he'd ask you the question, can you put your name to that? Mm. Can you put your name to that? And it's a brilliant question, because it's one of standards. And there's times when, you know, once you learn the routine, because if you said, well, no, I could have done it a bit better, you knew you were doing it over. And it didn't matter that the client hadn't asked for it. It wasn't about, let's get the basic things that someone can sign off on. There was a standard that was set. And the reason the business had been around for over 100 years is because we exceeded people's expectation and so can you put your name to it ultimately was can you put his name to it mm-hmm. can I put my name to it when I became a person of faith can I put God's name to it so I ask myself that question every day one of the reasons I'm here with you 
is that you're a person I love to put my name to. There's many a famous person, and you know I have far-reaching relationships that I don't put my name mm -hmm. to. So that is still a guiding principle. I have a pretty good-sized company today with hundreds of employees, and can you put your name to it? And we actually have the painting and decorating sign from Buffini and Company from the 1940s in the foyer of our office. So when you walk in there and every employee walks in there, they all know the story. Still put the name to it. Yeah. Was it hard for you, Brian, to make the move when you had been working with your family's business, a generational business in painting, mm -hmm. to make the shift over to the U.S.? Well, I never Did you feel like you were letting the family yeah. down? Oh, I mean, it was worse than that. I got involved in an organization when I was a kid. Started in my high school. There was an English teacher, myself and two other students. It was called Young Ireland. And the purpose of Young Ireland was, you know, Ireland's greatest export for 150 years has been its people. So we had 8 million people in the 1840s that went down to 2 million. And it's so come all the way back over 4 now today. But for 150 years, there's Irish people everywhere. And mm -hmm. you can't go 50 feet. I, mean, I don't know where the O'Learys, <laughs> the O'Learys in St. Louis didn't start in St. Louis. So we started this group and it was basically a buy Irish campaign. Mm -hmm. And we started training up kids to go, okay, go grocery shopping with your parents. And when they put stuff in the grocery cart that's not made in Ireland, just say, hey, just so you know, we're making these little choices and you're saving a few dollars here or whatever else. But this means I might not have opportunity. I might yeah. not have a job. Well, this thing took off. And it was this huge... Basically, we built a club in almost every school in Ireland. A young Ireland club. Mm -hmm. We eventually... We had offices. We had volunteers. We had staff. This was all being run out of a high school. We were meeting with the president of the country. When I graduated high school, the president of our country flew in on a helicopter to give me an award. So I've never told you any of this stuff because it's a little self-aggrandizing, but imagine now I am come to America. I'm over here for the summer. I'm very Irish. I plan to go back. I'm very into Irish sports, mm -hmm. Irish music, Irish culture. And I get run over by a car. So I get into this very serious motorcycle accident and I get gangrene. They're going to amputate my leg. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I've never told anybody these stories outside of my own family, but I was at one stage I was renting a room in a guy's house. I had three grapefruit in my refrigerator, and I was out of money. I had gangrene on my right leg. They were pouring hydrochloric acid on my leg six times a day. And um, I was desperate. I had no money and nowhere to go. And then they operated on me, put rods and screws in yeah. there. And now I had to stay. But now I owed all this money. I had all these bills. I guess I'll give you an insight. My mom and dad are great, lovely, very close I was in hospital for six weeks before they ever found out because I didn't want to worry them mm -hmm. I knew they'd probably sell something to come over to America they didn't have to. so as a child you carried that re economic yeah, responsibility right. and how they even found out was an accident but uh, that was my start and my start was so you can imagine here's the young Ireland kid yes. encouraging people to stay in Ireland encouraging products to be made in Ireland reached a certain level of notoriety as a kid for that and then you know now all of a sudden I'm in a motorcycle accident I owe all this debt and now I have to stay in America so over the years that becomes a, a big conflict the despair you mentioned even that emotion that's an inflection point mm -hmm. and it either is going to take you to the left or the right it's either going to take you farther down the path of despair mm -hmm. or it's going to be this great motivator mm -hmm. in your life how did the motorcycle event the accident the pain the gangrene the loss of everything, Brian, how did that shape who you became? Yeah. I was always a very driven kid. I was always a driven person. 
I was always uh, ambitious and wanted to do well. But now you take that and you put a little uh, into the soup, let's put a little desperation. So now I'm renting this room, I got the bills coming in. I had this big old mantelpiece, an old 1940s house, a big wooden mantelpiece. And what would happen is when the bills came in, I'd put them at the back. And when a bill fell off the front is when I read it. <laughs> so I've always been very systematic. My wife will tell you, you know, we're married 26 years. And it was about five or six years ago. She goes, you know, now we're living, flying my own jet for the last 15 years. Whatever. And she goes, you know, Brian, you've never answered our home telephone. I go, what? She goes, do you know that if the home phone rings and you're standing right next to it, you won't answer it? I go, I hadn't noticed. She goes, I have. She goes, um, why is that? And I, I, I have no idea. Mm. So I started thinking about it. What do you think it was? Of course. The Collective bill collectors. Man. And so this is decades ago. Yeah. But, you know, they hounded me. They pounded me. I never experienced that. We didn't have that in Ireland. We didn't have credit scores. We didn't have things like that. My parents, you know, everything was cash. They never had any debt of any sort. You couldn't get it. You couldn't get credit. So, Brian, what are you doing now to repay the debt and to get back on your feet, literally and figuratively? So I get to go. I mean, I go, I go work. And, I, you know, we have, I don't know if we have enough time to tell you the whole story, but, I mean, I got into the game. I, uh, I did everything. I, uh, I went back to sell T-shirts at a beach. I was a security guard at the La Jolla Cove Motel. The only security guard with a half cast on his leg and a pair of crutches. I, I tell the bad guys, if I catch you, I'm going to kill you. you know? But um, I worked at a photomat. And while I was doing that, I got my real estate license. At one stage, while I was waiting for the license to get done, I had a bicycle. I took the right pedal off. And this sounds too fantastic, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I took the right pedal off. I built out a little wooden board. And I pedaled one leg through La Jolla, the most expensive neighborhood in town here. And I would go knock on the, the doors of stores. They had these awnings, these canvas awnings. And I'd tell them I could paint the awning. And I would paint their awnings on a ladder with my leg and a half cast. Mm. But here's the thing. You know, it's funny. A person becomes who they are because of the adversity they face in their life. And then we remove it from our children's lives at every hand's turn. The fact of the matter is that was the making of me. And, I, you know, when you have nowhere else to go. I didn't have a safety net. Right. I've never been a welfare guy or whatever else, but I did go down because I was so desperate and they said, you're entitled to $45 a month. And I actually said to them, as a 19-year-old with my leg in a cast, I said, you know what, you guys need it more than I do. I didn't want to be here in the first place and I don't want the handout. Mm. So, but you know, people gave me opportunities and people gave me opportunities you shouldn't have. And I painted their houses and I worked in the photo mat and I sold T-shirts and I did the security. And then along the way, I got into real estate. You stumble into real estate and yeah. this is going to become one of the better moves you've made uh -huh. in a long, long, long time. Sure. You're uh, Irish. You probably don't know the, the market all that well in the Southern California area. And yet you become one of the most successful agents of all time yeah. in Southern California. Walk me through that path, Brian. Well, you know, you get in and you, you, in real estate, it's, it's pretty loose. You know, you get in and they, they go, okay, you need a page and a phone and this <laughs> and that. And you need all this stuff. And then... Here's a crisscross directory, call the people in the phone book and ask them if they're interested in selling their home and cold call them. Mm. And I tried that stuff, but it was so contrary to, can you put your name to this? It was so contrary to what I'd been raised with, which was these do a great job for people, connect with them, exceed their expectations, and then they'll tell their friends. So the leading trainer at the time in real estate had a phrase called find them, fleece them, and forget them. And I just went, I want no part of that. Now, most realtors want to know part of that. Of course. 
But I got in, I tried all the things, and I did all the open houses, and I did this, and I did that. I mean, here's a true story. I mean, I've told this story before. But the, my first listing appointment that I got, where I went on an open house, a little five-foot-one Mexican lady walked in. She must have weighed about 300 pounds. She had some kind of sauce on her blouse. She spoke broken English at best. I'm there. I'm the kid. I'm just I'm doing an open house. I show around the house, yada, yada. She asked me a bunch of questions. I didn't have all the answers because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But I said, I promise to get back to you. And the next day, I went in the office, and I made her my first call, and I called her back with all her questions. And she goes, okay, I knew you would. Come see me. And her name was Anna DeLeon, and I went to see her. And she was a little Mexican lady, and there was sauce on her shirt. And she said, here's the thing. I walk into all these open houses, and most of these realtors don't talk to me. And when they say they're going to follow up with me, they don't follow up with me. She goes, um, I have 10 grandchildren. I'm going to buy them all a house. And you're the man who's going to help me. And so the first house that I actually ever purchased was an offer. She said, this is the house we want to buy, and this is what we want to pay. I wrote up the contract, and I hadn't even seen the house yet. The first listing I ever took was from her. And I didn't have a car. And the guy who's my attorney today, 30 years later, his wife, Ann Taylor, her son was a Deadhead fan, you know, Grateful Deadhead mm-hmm. fan. And so he says, I go to him and I go, I don't have a car, I'm going on an appointment. So I'm going on a listing appointment, I don't have a car. And he goes, well, you know, I have my stepson's car and it's, um, it's a station wagon that has Deadhead stickers all over it. The driver's side is caved in. There's a bungee cord holding the driver's yes. side to the passenger side. And that's the car I drove to my first appointment. You know, I show up and, you know, I got a white shirt on with short sleeves and a black tie. So I look like a Mormon and I don't know that I'm look like a Mormon. And I'm sure you have a lot of Mormon fans, but I didn't know that I look like a Mormon calling on the, on the house. And then secondly, the kid in the house comes out and goes running back in. Mommy, mommy, the realtor's been in a car wreck, you know. So my first appointment, that's where I started from. But here's the thing. I know where else to go. I was willing to work hard. I busted my hump. Here's what I did. I served that lady and I served the family and I served the person who, who had a $100,000 house and the person later on who had a million dollar house. I served them the same. And I gave it all. And I'll be honest with you. You know I have a book coming out next year and, and the subtitle is Why It's So Easy to Make It Big in America. And it's a story about people like myself, immigrants who are kicking butt and taking names in America. And the reason is, it isn't that hard. It's not that hard. If you are on welfare in America, you're in the top 20 earners in the world. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. It's not hard. It's easy to show up on time. It's easy to be prepared. It's easy to work hard. The problem is just easier not to. It's easier to show up late. You, it's easier to be sloppy. When you're going through all this, Brian, the accidents, the deadhead car, yeah, yeah. the Mormon look, everything else you have yeah. going on, how frequently were you finding yourself saying, you know what, this is just not fair? The gangrene, the bills collected on the mantle, it's just not fair. Never, never, and never once did I ever think that. I didn't have time for the pain. Okay, I, I wasn't sitting around examining my navel. You know, I, I hadn't done 17 years in psychology courses. Mm-hmm. I wasn't visiting the family therapist. I didn't have any resources, and you just get on with it. And the truth of the matter is, I had to get on with it. And it's like, okay, I knew it. It's like, I'm a long way from home. And, and it doesn't mean that all the emotions are perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, fear was there. I had fear, I had a lot of fear. And by the way, in the short term, that can drive you. Right. If it drives you long term, it's going to kill you. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like driving a gasoline car with just the battery. It's supposed to spark you, but it's not supposed to drive you. So, you know, I got after it. And I, over time, because I'm very systematic, 
and that's one of the things I discovered about myself later. I mean, I was always into accounting. I did my father's books mm -hmm. since I was 12. So even though I'm kind of a salesman type personality, very systematic. And so I realized I wanted to treat people well. I wanted to exceed their expectations. And I wanted people to talk to me to their friends. Right. And I wanted to create that. And people go, oh, well, I got a good word of mouth business. I didn't want a word of mouth business because word of mouth business, it happens whenever it happens. Mm -hmm. I wanted to direct it. I wanted to know that if I did this activity, I could cause that referral. So by the time I'm 26 years of age, I'm uh, one of the top realtors in the United States. I'm making a lot of money. I'm investing in real estate. And I go from being the guy with 92 bucks in his wallet to being a millionaire. That doesn't happen in other parts of the world, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if, I, if I'm in Ireland or England or Italy or France and you have that happen, now again, they got their social medicine, this and that and the other, but like if you get into that kind of debt and you're at that, you're there for life pretty yeah, much. Yeah, right. And that's why I say it is easy to make it big in America because Americans will give you a chance. Amer you, American give you an opportunity. You know much of my story, Jack, and yeah. Roy, and Mom, and Dad, and all these right. incredible issues stepped in yeah. and, and through their insight yeah. shaped me into the, the little boy, then the young man, and now the guy across from you mm -hmm. that I became. Was there an individual back then that stepped into your life just right on time? How many can you count? I mean, the thing is, everybody's looking for this mythical figure that the halo surrounds and the, the, the music changes, and it's this and that. Here's the thing. You didn't know those guys were your mentors until afterwards. Mm -hmm. You didn't know what they were doing until later. The truth is, once you're in the game, there's people who want to help all along, especially in America. Mm. And they're everywhere. So I had people who came along that gave me a paint job. The guy's name's Bushler. His son, Judd Bushler, played for the Chicago Bulls. And his dad gave me a paint job that he'd no business giving me, but he liked me. And he was a successful man, and he had a top-notch property in La Jolla and no business letting a 19-year-old punk kid do this thing. kid. No. When I was renting the room, the place I was renting the room, there was a, a landlady who I never met, but Mrs. Springstead, never met this lady, but she owned a ton of real estate. And I was home and I was studying my real estate license and she would talk to me all the time. And she had been a secretary in a doctor's office and had a net worth in the 80s in the tens of millions. Her husband had died, and she kept telling me about real estate and how to buy real estate and how to hold real estate and how to invest in real estate. When I got into my real estate office, there was a guy named Gene Kuhlman, and Gene was just a guy sitting next to me in the office. And we struck up a friendship, and he exposed me to, to investment real estate. And we became partners on buying and selling real estate and still had, up until very recently, Gene's in his late 80s now, but we had holdings together. The truth of the matter is these people are everywhere. Then the real big magic change for me and why I went from being the guy on the bicycle to the guy on the Learjet is Gene exposed me to something that I had never been exposed to before. And he brought me to a success seminar in 1987. And I get to listen to Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Tommy Hopkins, Lou Holtz. I mean, I had no idea. You know, and the self-help movement has been alive and well in America for years and years and years. This is still brand new around the world. It's not brand new in right, America. Right, right and all of a sudden, these guys are willing to tell you what they did. And they tell you how to be successful. Mm -hmm. Lou Holtz, can I trust you? Are you good at what you do? Do you care about me? The difference is, I heard that. I went and bought the book. I had devoured the book. And I put those principles alive right. in my real estate business. Zig Ziglar, help enough people get what they want, you'll get everything you want. I put it in my business. Jim Rohn said, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. You'll go from making a living to making a fortune. And I did. And that's the deal. 
is that I didn't become a junkie to that stuff just for the sake of being a junkie. I applied it. But I was hungry. And these guys put me on a path. Now, I had no idea that each one of these guys would later become a very close friend. I didn't need them to become a friend. I didn't even ever meet any of these men. They right. changed my life. Through their books and through their tapes. Through their books and tapes. I would listen to Jim Rohn's a Challenge to Succeed series. It was in cassette form. I would listen to it until one of the cassettes snapped. Now, there's millennials listening to this, and they have no idea that <laughs> a cassette a tape, tape and what the purpose of scotch tape is and how that all works and, and how to rewind it. But I would listen to one of those tapes until something broke, and then I'd go buy it again. I listened to Jim Rohn's up until two years ago. I think I've listened to it for you know, 27 consecutive years. Zig Ziglar, you know, everything Zig ever recorded, I've listened to. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit from yeah. these mentors and incredible speakers and writers, yeah. mentors and friends of yours, to uh, something that's certainly not broke, your, your bride, yeah. your wife. Yeah. Tell me and my friends about Beverly. Where'd you meet? I met Beverly, the place that I'm renting a room. It turns out it's the, the home where the Olympic volleyball team has a weekly Bible study. So I met my bride-to-be with my leg in a cast, and it wasn't that I was particularly spiritual. I couldn't move. It was, I had the full cast. I couldn't get out of the place. And so they had a Bible study, and I'm sitting in the corner of the room. And, uh, you know, I can tell stories and so on and so forth, and um, she was the one person I couldn't get to because I talked to her. She was very intimidating to me. Mm-hmm. She would say, well, Brian, how are you doing? I'm like, ah, you know, it couldn't be better if I was twins, you know. And she would go, no, no, Brian, how are you doing? How are you really doing? And by the second question, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) So she was always this powerful presence, very, very understated, incredible athlete. Mm. You know, here's the first ever, you know, class in the Tennessee Hall of Fame, All-American, coached at West Point, and now she's on the Olympic team. And, you know, I used to tell her she couldn't have made the Irish Olympic team because her blood alcohol level was too low, you know. <laughs> but, you know, just this incredible athlete, an incredible person. You know, so we met. And so along my journey, as I get the ball rolling, as I get my career going, long before she realized that I realized this is the guy for me. Mm. And so that also helped me. You know, Zig Ziglar said, you want the greatest personal growth thing in the world? Get married and have a couple of kids. That'll get your head on straight. And so... I wanted to get married, and I wanted to marry that gal, and, um, you know, I couldn't be having a bunch of debt and this and that and the other, so it was another motivator. No doubt. But there is someone, and you, you've met her, I mean, when people meet her, they don't want to talk to me. Solid, depth of faith, depth of character. We're married 26 years, we got the six kids, the A-team, and it's been a good life, you know. Tell me about the first time you meet her parents, because uh, many of our oh, yeah. listeners and friends will, of, of course, watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, yeah. Back from the 60s. Yeah. You had the opposite of this. You're I this, starred in Guess Who's Coming to you Dinner. You were the star, man. Yeah, and it's funny, because Sidney Poitier, here's what's funny. My wife was into all things European, and I was into all things African. Hmm. I have no idea. My favorite actor growing up was Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. Little did I know, in 1989, I'd be flying to Decatur, Georgia, and I'd be meeting mom and dad, and here's the little white cracker from, this, from Dublin <laughs> meeting their prized daughter. They, they take me to St. Philip's AME, an African Methodist Episcopal Church, on Sunday morning, a thousand people, all rocking down and one little snowflake in the congregation, you know. And, you know, this is a whole new world. I mean, it, you know, at the time, Ireland's, Dublin's an extremely cosmopolitan place right. now, but Beverly was the first black person I ever met. Yeah. And so I'm in the back of the church. And I'm just, you know, everything's just 
very intimidating to me. It's a whole new world. And the pastor says the scariest words I've ever heard. He goes, are there any visitors here today? You know, every head in the place. We know where there's one. <laughs> so. Were you welcomed in right away? You know, here's the thing. My in-laws, you know, my mother-in-law was cagey. She grew up in the South. She'd seen some terrible things. Legit. Mm. They'd had a family member who had some terrible things happen. They had experienced these things. So she was cautious. Mm. Now, they grew up in Air Force, and Beverly grew up in the Air Force base. That was, you know, the American military. is It's an unusual military because it, it usually leads yes. in the whole arena of social awareness. And so... You know, my wife, you know, and her family, you know, they were surrounded by and integrated with people of all different walks and talks and shapes and colors and whatever else. But, you know, and then uh, any mom would be nervous about their daughter. But, you know, it was funny. Her dad, uh, when I finally did the guess who's coming to dinner thing, and I talked to him, you know, and asked his permission to marry his daughter, he said, you know, it's sometimes it seems like an interracial relationship. And this, you got to remember, this is, I'm talking almost 30 years ago. It was a little different. At the time, interracial marriages were 2% of the entire population. And of those, only 2% was where the guy was white. Yes. So it was a very rare thing. But he just said, it seems to take a special kind of love. And he goes, so that gives me great confidence. So they were great. You know, and today I have a spectacular relationship with them you, today. Brian, you do have a spectacular relationship with them and with Beverly and your babies. Mm-hmm. What's the one key ingredient? I realize there are many, but key ingredient to have a successful marriage. You're on the road a lot at one point during yep. your career. Yeah. You're working like a dog and playing like a puppy. How do, how do you balance it all and yeah. be a phenomenal spouse? Well, I'll tell you the answer I really believe, but it won't be very popular to people listening. Yeah, I think you ought to provide the truth. Yeah. I think when you come to grips to the fact that your life is no longer your own, then you win. The reason for all the strife and all the struggle, and I see a couple hundred thousand people a year at our events, and we coach, you know, and train. We've trained over three million people. And again, you're asking me the truth, and I'll tell you. It's, a lot of it has to do with selfishness and being self-consumed. I see guys that get married. I was, a, I was a one handicap when I got married. Well, here's the thing. Golf takes four and a half to five hours. Practice before, practice during the week, having a beer and whatever else afterwards. My dad, my dad plays golf for 60 years. Well, here's the deal. When I had a wife and six kids and I was traveling, golf went out the window. I threw it away. I'd play golf once or twice a year from something that was like our family's identity yes. in Ireland. And people go, I'm not prepared to do that. I know guys that do this and do that, and they're out in the bar, and they're doing this and doing that. They want to live the exact same life they were as a single guy, as a married guy. And here's the thing. I say, grow up, man. Grow up, man. You want to do that? Oh, you want to? Here's the way it works. I still play golf once in a while. Now here's where I'm at. My kids are older. My kids are together. We don't have uh, drugs, and we don't have alcohol, and we don't have kids gone sideways, and yada, yada. And now here's what happens. Now my wife's practicing golf now we're starting to play golf together and it's more fun than anything i ever had so in giving it away i got it back what would you say to those listening right now that are thinking you know what i'm the one that gives it all away and my spouse doesn't i'm yep. the one that's selfless right so for those yeah and there's a lot of that and and here's the thing and it does take two to tango and i've got people in my life many times that like here's the thing sometimes one person is selfless and one person is complete consumer mm. you know and if you're a giver and you're in a relationship with a taker it's an unintentional taker, you got a chance. But if you are constantly bringing to light, in love, in grace, not with passive aggressiveness, or not with 
nuclear threats, mm -hmm. but you constantly come and you constantly come and there is no serving each other. Then you have some difficult conversations to have and you might have some difficult decisions to make. And it is tough. Relationships are, it takes you to the end of yourself. Here's the thing, I have a fantastic marriage, I do. Mm -hmm. But I have to start every morning. And I have to start every morning with amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I'm a self-consumed SOB. And as long as I keep those two thoughts in mind every day, I got a chance. But, you know, at the end of the day, you got to give it away. And my wife and I try to outdo one another in giving. And at the end of the day, my goal is I'm going to outgive her. And that's my job. And the way I lead my family is I lead by service. And I lead by giving it away. And that's my priority. And that's it. You lead your family this way, certainly Beverly, this way. I've noticed you've led your real estate career this way, mm -hmm. the folks you served. It's also how you lead your team and how you encourage them to lead others. You've mm -hmm. hinted, Brian, that you are a coaching organization. Mm -hmm. You do some traveling, a little bit of speaking. <clears throat> yeah. Tell me a bit about Buffini and Company. Well, it's funny that the biggest ideas you have, it wasn't even uh, like, oh, a, a line in the sand and, a, and an epiphany moment. It just happened over time. Your tomorrow builds on your today, and you grow where you're planted. So I, I did real well in real estate. So the more I, well I did, people said, well, how do you do it? And so I would be asked to speak at these different real estate conferences and sit on panels, and, and I would do it. And, I, and as I did it, I found out two things. A, I had a knack for communicating it. Mm -hmm. B, people had a great need for it. And C, I started seeing there were business models out there that were doing it well. And I'd spend time looking at this business model, and I spent time looking at that business model, and I spent time looking at this business model. And then um, Beverly came to see me speak one time, and she goes, you need to go do this. Now, normally not a good thing when your wife tells you to hit the road, but, um, <laughs> but I said, you know, I had a passion for it. I really liked seeing somebody's lights turn on. And I also felt a great sense, and I think it's one of the things I talk about is, a heartfelt spirit of gratitude is one of the elements that I find in, in many successful immigrants. Hmm. And I wanted to give something back. I wanted to give something back to the country that had accepted me, to the industry that had blessed me. And I, I initially started out with that mindset. And then as I got into it, I discovered, man, I'm going to do this. And, and, I, and then I made it into a business. So I made helping people my business. And um, I used to do it one kitchen table at a time. Then I started doing it one ballroom at a time. Mm -hmm. And now we do it one company at a time. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Wells Fargo is, has been one of our sponsors for years. And they're, you know, they're a company that's a, I think they're a $60 billion brand. They're bigger than Disney. Mm. And we're their coaching company. I couldn't deposit $20 in Wells Fargo 30 years ago, mm. you know? So, but being faithful every day, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, doing the right thing. Um, you're such a giver. And the balance for the giver is to also build an appropriate boundary and an opportunity for reciprocity. Right. And I saw you do this when you launched your book, which is fabulous, by the way, and I love On Fire, and I recommend it to people, and I bought thousands of copies for my clients. <laughs> and, you know, but you're a giver's giver, and I think the great thing you can share with people is there's a lot of people that are like John O'Leary, that they give, 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 and they have to jump over the hurdle to learn how to receive and reciprocate. And people mm -hmm. go, hey, if you like this, tell your friends. Mm -hmm. If you like this, buy the book. And I've watched you do that, and I've watched you develop into the businessman you are. Uh, and that's great stuff. Well, you know? you're flattering. And it, you, know, you heard my introduction as the, uh, the love hug goes on on this, on this call. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you've mentored me and, and encouraged me to become way more accepting of the gifts that I've received. Mm -hmm. So Brian, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you guys are doing today at the Phoenix Company. So, um, you know, today, like I said, we started out doing seminars, then it turned into coaching, then it turned into building programs and marketing systems for people and then training systems. One out of every eight homes in the U.S. is sold through our clients now, one out of every seven in Canada, three million people in 37 countries. So it's a neat deal. Buffini Company continues to grow its base, continue to influence in the marketplace, continues to even provide now resources for people who are looking for realtors, mm -hmm. you know, so we can direct them to the best trained ones in the business. And then on the other side of that is my own passion, which is to now take a message that's burning inside of me to a larger audiences outside of real estate. And so that's where, you know, you know, next March I'm launching this, uh, a book, but it's, it's more than a book. And that's, uh, we're going to talk about the emigrant edge and we're going to start bringing the success philosophy anchored and rooted in practical how to's to the marketplace. It's not just if you can dream it, you can do it. It's not just attract it into your life. It's here's the philosophy, how to do it. here's the mindset, here's how to get motivated mm -hmm. to do it. And then here's the methodologies to succeed. Here's the, there's practical things to do. There's steps to take. Successful people leave clues. And so one of the things in that is I want to do two things. I want to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable is truthfully. 50% of Americans surveyed last year said the American dream is not even possible. And that is the greatest bunch of crap. Did I say that loud enough? That I've ever heard no, in my say, life. Say it one more time. I think you know, the wind blew. Just ridiculous. The American, where have you been? Right. Get a passport, go visit places, go see what other people are doing in other parts of the world. All the speakers and relationships I have who are all overseas, they come back and they go, people have no idea. Yeah, of course. So the fact of the matter is, give me a bleeding break about the American dream. Here's a fact, 50% of all small businesses within 10 years in the United States will be started by people who are not born here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, the American dream is alive and well for those who believe it. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is this, is that everyone who came here, including you, John O'Leary, you had people who came before you. Back in your DNA is some courageous O'Leary who did this, who left everyone they knew, who left everything they knew and started over and left that. And let me tell you this, there's a pain as an immigrant, there's a pain that never goes away. I tell people all the time, I belong somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. There's a pain that never leaves you. And inside this country, unless you are a Native American, 330 million people in this country had either they came yeah. themselves or someone in their lineage came from somewhere else. And inside that DNA, somebody made a choice. That spirit is still in you. And what would that person do with your opportunity? What, what would that person say about the things you complain about. Like my flight's 15 minutes late, my baggage was delayed by a half hour, my fast food took three minutes, yes. can you believe it? What would the original O'Leary, and I'm talking to everyone who's listening here, whatever your name is, and if you're African American, like my kids are half white and half black, I say somewhere in your lineage, one of your ancestors survived slavery. Mm. They came over here on a slave ship and they survived it. Their great-grandfather, Solomon, was a sharecropper, mm. the youngest of 12 children. So, so I go, what would he do? Would he be here complaining about this? My kids are all workers. My kids didn't grow up in a small house, didn't grow up painting houses, but they're all workers because the mindset can be transferred. 
because inside the DNA, it's there. So I want to wake up people. First of all, get your head out of the sand. If you can't make it here, you can't make it anywhere. I'm not talking about New York. If, right. if you make it here, you make it here. If you can't make it in America, there isn't a place you can make it. This is the best place to make it. It's the easiest place to make it. Second, it's still possible. And third, it's in you. It's in your DNA. It's in your past. So I've read an advanced reader's copy of The Immigrant Edge, and uh, it is awesome. I loved your take on gratitude. Mm -hmm. You know it's close to my heart, too. I learned it from my father. I know you learned it from yours. Mm -hmm. It is in our DNA. Mm -hmm. Brian, I want to move from that. We'll come back to it at the end. Sure. Into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. Seven questions as we move toward okay. the finish line. I have no idea what these are. Here we go, man. I think you'll know the answers to them. Right. You may not know the questions, but you'll have an answer I'm first. I'm not going to test. Best book you ever read? The Bible. Tomorrow, you discover your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. What do you do? I'm going to give it away. I don't want anything from anyone. And you know, Anyone else, by the way, who shared that, I would say, oh, bull, Brian. But I know Buffini well enough to realize I'm going to move on to question three. <laughs> Brian, if your house caught fire, this one is close to mine. We've had two house fires in our life. And mm -hmm. the amazing thing is I know you've had one. Mm -hmm. So this question will hit close to your home. Brian, if your house catches fire and all the living people and things are already out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing, what do you run in and save? Well, unfortunately, the question is uh, nine years too late for me. But if I could have gone back into the house and if I'd have known my house was going to burn down on October 22nd, 2007, all the videotapes I had of all my kids growing up, and uh, we lost them all and that, that's the only thing I miss mm. that's the only thing I miss so it's the memories that are associated with that and you know we've had to find other ways to try to recreate that mm -hmm. but at the end of the day you know all the other stuff is stuff you know it really is so we've been through it you've been through it I lost some things that were very rare but at the end of the day none of that really mattered the only thing I would want was my kids videos Brian if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Well, I mean, in fairness, the answer is Jesus for a lot of people, right? I mean, if I could do that, I would love to just have one dinner, one uh, break in bread. That would have been enough. That would be great because that's a huge influence on my life. But I think, you know, there's a lot, I'm a history student. And there's a lot of characters through history. Alexander the Great, uh, Julius Caesar, Winston Churchill. I'd love to have had uh, lunch with Ronald Reagan. Mm. Mother Teresa, who, by the way, went to her convent, was a mile away from my house, but she left before I was yes. born. So those kinds of people. I have had a chance to meet some remarkable characters as it is, so I, I really have been blessed by that. But uh, some of the characters from history, I, you know, there's some great ones out there. But the beautiful thing is you can read. You right, can read you what can meet them. Yeah. Three more. Best advice you've ever received? Work harder on yourself than you do on your job. You go from making a living to making a fortune. I didn't know what that meant. When Jim Rohn said, become a millionaire for what it will make of you, at the mm -hmm. time I wanted to be a millionaire. So I thought, well, what that would make me is wealthier, and then my problems would go away. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand that being a millionaire is a state of mind, not a state of account. <laughs> and that my job today, my job security, and my future is dependent directly on how far I grow. And I truly believe you can double your income as fast as you double your self-esteem.
what would you tell your 20 year old self enjoy it i would say trust god enjoy the journey and it's going to be all right it's going to be all right and then finally brian it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in a single sentence <laughs> how do you want your one sentence to read like a tombstone type thing a descriptor of your life so when your buddies are passing the potato salad around the old pine yeah. box what's the one sentence that most perfectly and eloquently and accurately sums up your life loved god loved and served his family and helped the people he came in contact with made them better uh Buffini, your grandfather asked a question a few years ago can you put your name to it and my friend sitting across from his grandson a continent away and a lifetime away, I can say assuredly uh, you can. I'm honored to call you my friend and I'm grateful Likewise. for the time today. Likewise, it's fun. Thanks my for friends. coming to San Diego. Well, thank you for joining me today on our inaugural episode of Live Inspired with John O'Leary. You're on the podcast now. On the front side of this interview, I mentioned that Brian was my mentor and it was my honor to share his insights and his expertise on Living Inspired with all of you today. I think my favorite takeaway is, can you put your name on it? That's pretty awesome. Can you take and put your name on it? Can you put your name on your days, on your activities, on your business, in your faith journey, in your lives? Are you living up to your potential? Isn't that it? Can you put your name on it? Thank you, Brian, for that. And thank you and your grandfather for sharing that wisdom with you. In the show notes, we have links to Brian's book, his website, and a link to his podcast, The Brian Buffini Show, which I follow, which I love, which I highly encourage you to check out, The Brian Buffini Show. Now, my friends, if you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you, please take a few moments right now to review this show. Subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. This will really help me get the word out about the show. Thanks for helping me create a movement of individuals living inspired, whether they may be your neighbors, tell them, your family members, tell them, your coworkers, strangers, whoever it may be. Let them know the value that they will receive by checking out Live Inspired with John O'Leary. You can find out more about our guests and more about how to live inspired on my website, www.johnolearyinspires.com. Dot com. That's one more time. John O'Leary Inspires.com. For this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary reminding you that this is your day. Live inspired.